right, welcome back. We are now going to move to the trial of a contempt case, proving and defending the case at trial. I am still joined by Jerry Height and Carrie Bertrand, who are both lawyers at my office, O'Neill Wasaki Family Lawyers, and also retired Judge Bill Harris out of Tarrant County. Jumping right in here, the trial of a contempt case. Uh, we've covered it in some of the others, but if somebody just tunes into this one uh, portion, non-jury versus jury trial. When is a jury trial available? When is a non-jury trial available? Jerry, you want to kick that kick us off on that? Depends on the relief sought. If they're seeking uh, more than 180 days in jail, or uh, I mean, you get a $500 fine. If it gets if it gets above that, then you could seek a, a jury trial. You have a right to a jury trial. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be heard to it to the bench. And they and the law describes that as the difference between a petty offense and a serious right. offense, um, because we're in criminal land, right? So a petty offense would then be anything less than six months. We think of that as kind of like a traffic ticket type of thing, where a serious offense is something that's more than six months. Right. Um, we talked a little bit about this in the prior session, but let's kind of cover it again in case somebody's tuning into just this session concurrent punishment versus consecutive punishment carrie you want to talk about that one uh concurrent is going to be preferred unless you want to get into all the complications with consecutive including the jury trial and um i guess making sure your pleadings are in order as well as you've pled properly for either one so with consecutive punishment if it aggregates to more than the six months then it would be in the jury trial territory right. judge have you ever had a jury trial in a contempt case in your 24 years or so on the bench i have not i i, I brought a jury over once with a uh, a pro se that demanded a jury trial but uh, he did it for a delay <clears throat> and I had the jury there in 22 minutes and so he looked at the jury and decided he wanted me to hear the case <laughs> they looked more scary than you did <laughs> that's interesting um, yeah I, 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 I never I've never I've never tried a jury trial to a contempt case to a jury so if your pleadings say uh, six months for each count to serve con, uh, consecutively, but you get in, the petitioner gets in the trial and stands up at, as, as the respondent says, well, then I want a jury trial. And the petitioner says, wait, 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 never mind. I don't mean it. Just, I asked for a trial amendment to just say concurrent up to six months max. Do you think that's jury trial or non-jury trial? I think you're right. The jury trial is already triggered. Okay. It's by the pleadings. The, the pleadings before the court is what you have to look at, I, I believe. Okay. All right. The judge brought up an interesting point, though, when he said he had a pro se, because you have the additional issue of having to give them the right to counsel advice. And I've seen that happen where they get it reset because, oh, well, I want a lawyer. So when does the right <clears throat> to counsel invoke? Uh, I think if you're, if you're being deprived of liberty, it's invoked. <laughs> yeah. I think if you've got one day jeopardy, it's invoked. And so, would you appoint counsel then? I, I always did, Michelle, simply because I I think technically the judge can have an indigency hearing and find that the respondent indigent or not indigent. To me, it was just always a simpler, easier solution to appoint counsel. 
and uh, and then if you know if the you know tax costs or something like that uh, as a remedy, uh, just because when you're talking about a criminal case, <coughs> appellate courts in Texas have a history of dislike of criminal cases coming out of criminal contempt coming out of civil courts, and uh, you know historically you some of the decisions uh, they're they're rather hostile towards the contempt cases so I think you're just the judge is just looking for trouble if he doesn't appoint a judge yeah a lawyer and I would assume as a judge in a in a contempt case you want the record to be as clean as possible yes yeah so what's the burden of proof at trial Jerry it's it's uh, beyond a beyond a reasonable doubt is what it is is what it always is and the burden of course is on petitioner <laughs> Jerry, you're so funny <laughs> you've been a lawyer a long time yeah, uh, too long you've maybe. forgotten more yeah. than you remember yeah, right some days so yes. so what does beyond a reasonable doubt mean there's a question yeah yeah what does that mean We've pondered it for several hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> so in a normal civil case, you've got preponderance of the evidence. And then in some issues in a civil case, it might be clear and convincing evidence. And then in a contempt case, it's more, I mean, beyond a reasonable doubt is the criminal standard, right? So, so you know, in the, in the grand scheme of like, of, of the spectrum of burdens of proof, I've always thought of it as, as, preponderance of the evidence is like 50% plus a little plus a smidge just barely tipping the scale in favor and then clear and convincing I think of more as kind of like that 75% like more likely than not is that moving the scale yeah you, the way I was taught in law school was preponderance that was a long time ago a long time ago <laughs> we, we had, I, I remember reading my stone tablet that I had <laughs> uh, Preponderance is a move is any movement of the scale in your direction. Okay. Clear and convincing is a substantial movement where you know it's 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 it creates a firm, like the definition says, a firm belief. And then I think that uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, you have to push it all the way down. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought of beyond a reasonable doubt as like ninety nine percent. Like, yeah. you know, we. So I think the term that a lot of the criminal cases use is moral certainty. Moral certainty. I believe that's a term I've heard before. Moral is a great word, yeah. right? <laughs> Moral <Yes>. certainty. <laughs> so, so how in, in reality, Judge, in, in, you're in a trial, you're charged with sitting there listening to the evidence, you, you know, there's a petitioner who's prosecuting the contempt, there's a respondent, you know, let's say it's not a clear-cut case that usually happens like on a child support. Let's say it's, a, you know, something that's not so clear-cut. How do you know as a judge when they've when the petitioner's done enough to get to that point? I think it's maybe it's almost like the the feeling I get from it is it's almost like the uh, the uh, Supreme Court justice that says he knows pornography when he sees it. I know reasonable doubt when I see it yeah. and I can't just I can't tell you why I can't give you any specifics I think that it's just the judge has to rely on his sense of fairness and and adherence to his oath yeah to, to so it's to basically it. a persuasion that you see enough evidence in mm -hmm. your scale 
just goes down to a point where I, yep. I, I know what happened. I'm convinced. Right. Yeah. Um, what about on the other side of the case, whenever um, a respondent is defending a case and presenting evidence on affirmative defenses? Obviously, the burden on an affirmative defense is not beyond a reasonable doubt. No. So is it preponderance? I'm not, sure. I'm not sure the legal standard they applied. It may be clear and convincing. So how do you know as a judge, as you're sitting there listening to this evidence, yeah. and the petitioner's trying to get you all the way to, to beyond a reasonable doubt, and the respondent is saying, no, I've got these defenses. Like let's say one of them was failure to uh, comply with a condition precedent or something. You know, how do you know when when a respondent has shown enough to say prove their affirmative defense? Again, I think it's that if you create a doubt in my mind as to their on a on a well. Involuntary inability is not a good example because that's just all but impossible to prove. Yeah, yeah. And the appellate cases hold that out. But uh, on a lot of these other defenses, I just think if it creates a doubt in the mind of your trier, then uh, you got there. So, so then the affirmative defense, whatever that standard would be, would be creating the reasonable doubt. I, I think that's what the, the, the whole purpose of the affirmative right. defense the opposite of reasonable is, is, uh, is to create yeah. the reasonable yeah. doubt yeah okay or to point out the reasonable doubt gotcha gotcha um all right so the respondent does he have to be there in person i mean can a respondent to a contempt case just not show up and hide out carrie <laughs> negative no they must be present yeah. must be present to win yes or lose or go to jail <laughs> so um all right so what if you have jerry what if you have you're prosecuting a contempt case and you've got a respondent you've served them with the notice personally served them and they don't show up what do you do <laughs> can you proceed with your contempt case without them there no what you do is you ask the court to issue a capius, take them, arrest them, and force them to appear at the contempt hearing. So I have a, a case where uh, the respondent lives in another state <laughs> and got served, but lives in another state. Will a, will a Texas capius be effective in another state? Judge, you, you have an well, opinion on that? The court's capius says to the sheriff or the officer in the state of Texas. <laughs> so, That's a problem. I don't think so. Now, I, I know that on a lot of like writs and things like that, although it says it's directed to peace officers in the state of Texas, uh, for example, Oklahoma will enforce those, like on habeas corpus and things like that. But on an arrest warrant or a capious warrant, I'm not sure about that. I've never had one that I've an out-of-state uh, law enforcement yeah. would would enforce. Because, and from what I understand, the reasoning to be is that that when you're in another state, then they have to go through extradition procedures. Mm -hmm. yep. And that state isn't going to spend their resources extraditing, going through the hearing process of extraditing somebody from one state to come to another state to defend a child support case or a civil type of, of contempt case. Hmm. So that that's always how it's been explained to me is that 
is that they're just not going to go through all that. I think it's the same way with a lot of criminal warrants. If you get a, a misdemeanor warrant uh, right. out of state, the you know that an out of state agency may arrest a person and hold them for a reasonable period of time, but they're going to make you come get them. They're not going to they're not going to uh, send them back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right, so you can't, so the, the, the petitioner cannot proceed against the defendant in absentia. The, the respondent must be present to win. If they're not present, you ask the judge to issue a capius, um, which then causes them, a capius is just a civil arrest warrant, basically, the name of a civil arrest warrant. And so then the capius is executed to bring that respondent before the court and they're held in jail, I guess, and if the, let's say they're picked up at eight o'clock at night, obviously the judge isn't gonna show up at the courthouse at eight o'clock at night, so they're put in jail. So then what's the process once a respondent is picked up on a capius, what's the process, let's assume it's a child support contempt, for dealing with that capius and the hearing thereafter? Well, they, they have to be brought before the court. And I believe on uh, child support, they have to be brought before the court within three days. And uh, the court either sets a hearing and uh, orders them detained, or they, they have to be released on, on uh, bail. Well, and the, doesn't the capius have to have an appearance bond set in it? <coughs> yes. And I, I thought if, if they're in jail waiting to, for the original hearing, I thought that was, and you're probably right because you're a retired judge, <laughs> but I thought it was that by the next business day, they had to appear before the judge. So here's what I think it is. I think that the capius has an appearance bond mm-hmm. and they can post the appearance bond. Right. If there's not an appearance bond in the capius, they have to be brought within 24 hours right. uh-huh. for a bond to be set. If there's, if there's no appearance bond. Right. If the capius sets a bond, which Jerry's right, right it usually does. Right, yeah. it usually does, should, ought to. Um, and then I think there's a requirement that the hearing be held kind of post haste, um, very quickly, if they're in jail. Yep. So so that they can have their speedy trial, mm-hmm. like you do in a criminal case. Um, all right. So um, if the respondent has an appearance bond in the capius, let's say it's a thousand dollars, and the respondent gets his mommy to come down there and pay the thousand dollars so he can get out of jail and go home. Um, then what happens if it's a child support contempt? What happens to that appearance bond? <laughs> you know what happens. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm tossing <laughs> you a softball, Judge. What happens? Well, if he's found, if he's found, even if he's found not guilty of contempt, you can still grant an arrearage judgment, which is a preponderance. You know, you just have to prove that there's wasn't paid. You don't have to prove any contempt stuff. So you're you're probably going that bond is probably going to be forfeited for Turnover. to be applied to the child support. Yeah, um, that same rule doesn't necessarily apply to possession contempts or other types of contempts. It would be more like a criminal bond where it could mm-hmm. be returned, right? I think that what, you know the the court is if there's evidence offered, the court is required on a finding of contempt. The court, it, the statute says the court shall award reasonable attorney's fees and costs. And I think that's that's where that, that bond, bond might end up go. on, on yeah. a possession Turnover. case. Because yeah. it's the bird in hand money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So how, if you're the petitioner in trial in a contempt case, 
how, what, how does the petitioner go about proving their case beyond a reasonable doubt? Like, what are some types of evidence? Carrie, you want to weigh in on this one? Like, what are some evidence? You know, how would you go about trying the trial? So if it's child support, for example, you're going to want a copy of the attorney general's register. You're going to want to put on, uh, put the respondent up there probably and ask them questions about, you know, is this the order? Have you been ordered to ch pay child support? You're going to uh, prove up the actual order language with the uh, respondent and then obviously enter evidence as to non-payment with the register. So typical um, trial procedure, in other words, a, a contempt trial proceeds just like any other trial, right? So you'd have witnesses, right. you'd have exhibits. Um, you mentioned the, the child support <coughs> register from the Attorney General's office. Um, how do you get the child support register into evidence? Trick question. <laughs> um, you can have the attorney general, uh, attor the attorney for that uh, section of the um, office present at trial to uh, authenticate that record, or you could have filed a business records affidavit prior. Um, would it be, Jerry, do you think it would be provable as a certified public document? If it's certified, I think you can. They used to certify them. Some offices would, and now they've gone gone away from that. Which gone is, online. Yeah, which is very frustrating. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, there's the there's the public record exception, which is if you are a uh, uh, entity of the state and you're required to maintain certain public records for for, for mass consumption, yeah. and that is what you're offering, then you can try to get it under that exception. I don't yeah, know, I and, and, and I think that works. Yeah. So yeah. you know, so you probably can get it in just as a public record mm -hmm. then. Yeah. Um, so, um, what about calling the respondent to testify, Carrie? Does self-incrimination apply? The judge is going to admonish the respondent as to their Fifth Amendment rights not to testify. Um, and if they don't, you should probably ask the judge to do so. Yeah. That's um, very important. Yeah. Very well, important. so let me ask you this, Judge. I mean, what if there was strategically by the petitioner just a pleading for civil contempt and not criminal contempt. Does self-incrimination apply? On a civil contempt. I mean, I don't know why anybody do that. I don't. <laughs> civil contempt would be more like you want the uh, respondent Compliance. to sign an order, like Jerry's talking right. about, that it was ordered to execute a deed, and right. Jerry sues him and for says, contempt. "I want him held in jail till he signs." Yeah. I don't think there's a I don't I don't know that the rights incident to a criminal trial attached yeah. to those. That would be uh, my opinion is that, that and, and simply because would not necessarily apply. Yeah. yeah. Simply because it's not it's not the the a lot of, one of the things a lot of people don't realize on a contempt case is that the the person receiving the child support or the person entitled to visitation is not the injured party in a contempt case. Now, who is the injured party, Judge? <laughs> the court. <laughs> so technically, if if you file a contempt case and then say, gee, Judge, I decided to dismiss this contempt case, the judge can, I, I cannot imagine it happening, but the judge could conceivably say, no, no you don't. You're <laughs> going to prosecute this case. Well, doesn't that, I mean, doesn't the authority for that come uh -huh. from the family code says, that a 
theoretically, I've never seen it happen, but theoretically, mm-hmm. a petitioner can say, hey, judge, he's violating the order, and the judge can appoint an independent counsel to investigate as a prosecutor. That's correct. I've never seen it done either, but you're you're absolutely correct. The court has the authority to do that. Back in the day in Dallas County, there used to be the uh, child support office. Do you remember that? Guardian ad litem. Guardian ad litem court, right? (laughs) Wasn't that basically the authority for them doing it that way? Was Mm -hmm. was it was an independent prosecutor? I mean, that was really before the OAG kind of took over that role. But yeah, that was the that was the stated purpose, uh, I believe. Yeah. So okay, Um, so the respondent, the respondent has to. does the respondent have to present evidence in a contempt case? No. No. So the respondent can just stand on whether or not the petitioner proves their case. Absolutely. It's like a criminal case. Mm-hmm. And they, they, what Carrie's touching on earlier is if you're prosecuting a contempt case and you call the respondent or the respondent has an attorney who maybe didn't go to law school uh, <laughs> and allows him to testify <laughs> uh, be sure to ask the judge and say judge would you please warn the respondent of his rights mm-hmm. yep. because if you don't and that respondent you know that the court's going to grant habeas corpus on that yeah. every time well right. so but but as a judge i mean i've i've never been a judge and i've never been to judge's school <laughs> but i'm told <clears throat> that in judge's school they give y'all kind of a little cheat sheet manual of yeah. how to conduct a contempt case right yeah, yeah. and it kind of has those warnings and things in it that you're supposed to give well it does michelle but i i, I will suggest to you that there's a lot of those those scripts and cheat sheets and things like that judges are given in new judges school yet you see some really odd things happen in courtrooms around the state yeah so what if the respondent has pled some affirmative defenses? Let's, let's not say it's inability to pay, because I think he would have to testify in an right. inability to pay. Right. But can the respondent both refuse to testify but offer other evidence, offer witnesses or something? No. I don't, I don't, believe, I believe, that there, I don't believe you can transactionally invoke in Texas. Yeah. Uh, you can't pick and choose. No, invoking. you can't. Yeah. Well, what if what if respond what if it was a possession contempt case, and respondent's mama was there? Could could the respondent call his mama to testify and prove up his defense through his mama? I think so. Yeah, sure, yeah. I don't see why yeah. not. Okay. And in fact, I think that, that would probably rights. be a good tactical yeah. move on the respondent's part. What if the petitioner attempts to call the respondent? And the respondent invokes his fifth for the petitioner's case. Does that last all the way through the trial, or can the respondent then change his mind when it's his turn to present evidence and get up there and testify? Kind of negates the purpose of waiving prior because he's going to be subject to well, cross. Maybe, right. I mean, maybe he's just waiting to see if they prove their case. I think that's. I think that's again transactional, and I yeah. think that mm-hmm. what. I've never seen that happen, but I think the net result of that, it's right off the top of my head, I would say he can, but if he later testifies, I believe the court can allow the prosecuting lawyer to cross-examine. Cross, Absolutely. Yeah. Call him back, call, recall. Oh, him. oh yeah. reopen, uh-huh. reopen. Yeah. yeah. That would yeah. be fair. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I would think as a judge, whether you can, you know, it's one of those, uh, the idiom, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Exactly. So, you know, even if he can technically say, no, I'm not testifying in your case in chief, I'm waiting till it's my turn. I would think a judge would view that as kind of uh, playing games. Yeah. And that might not, that might backfire on him. Good. Judges are the are the determiner of the credibility of witnesses, <laughs> right, Judge? Yes, that's, that's true. So that might backfire on them uh, from that standpoint. Um, so how would how would a respondent to contempt go through proving up, say, conditions precedent? Um, let's say it's a, a medical enforcement, and with medical enforcement for the unreimbursed medical. There's some requirements for um, for conditions precedent before the petitioner can can um, can recover. So, what if the respondent was saying, you know, those conditions haven't been met? How, from an evidentiary standpoint, could a respondent try that issue? I, 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 well, it's sure. difficult to try because you're almost proving a negative in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's I mean, I mean, one, I think, I think those provisions are unenforceable by contempt. I agree because mm-hmm. you're talking about a percentage applied to an unknown number. Mm-hmm. How is that going to meet the specificity you need to to meet Slavin in any case like that? I, I agree. So with I Jerry. don't really think that burden is going to ever fall to the defendant. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be the mm-hmm. the the, the the petitioner who's going to try and fail to, to get there. <laughs> I think I think it's absolutely correct. When they when you start talking about medical expenses, you're going to have to prove unknown providers, right. unknown dates, mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. And I think what your your remedy on that is wait for the the prosecution to put on their case mm-hmm. and move for judgment on those counts. Right, right, right. <clears throat> and then we talked about this a little bit in the last session, but what about a teenager? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if a petitioner sues for contempt over a teenager who won't go on a visit and a respondent is defending that, I, if I were a respondent defending that, I would plead impossibility of performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but how would a trial like that, like how would a petitioner prove up enough to prove contempt on a teenager possession and how would a respondent avoid contempt on a teenager possession? That's the one time we've talked about today where if I was a respondent, I'd be getting ahead with the evidence. Because if you just sit there and say nothing, then all the court's going to consider is, you know, supposed to be on this time, didn't show up, and there you go. And what that what that respondent's going to do is put forth all the evidence and witnesses and recordings of all the times they tried to get their darling little child to go, <laughs> and they said, hell no, or actually left the house at the right time driving off and just never went to dad's. Or even got the dads, because you see this sometimes, and then immediately got in their car or walked home. Yeah. And all those, you know, the, the only way the court's going to hear that is if you put on evidence. Okay. So, Would you call the child? <laughs> if the child's 17, absolutely. What if the child's 15? Probably still, yes. If it means I'm going to jail or not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, I asked this in the last session, but... You know, would discovery be available? Could you depose the child so that you don't have to put the child on the witness stand in the trial? Could you take a deposition? I mean, if I'm the defendant, I think I think you got a lot better chance of getting the benefit of discovery than if you're the petitioner. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what says you can't. Is kind of my point yeah. on that. 
Because I don't know what says you can't put a child on the witness stand. Well, I mean, I, I agree. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I agree with that. But I think from a practical standpoint, I've even tried criminal cases mm-hmm. where we took depositions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't yeah. think that anything says you can't take criminal take a deposition just because it's a criminal yeah. contempt case. Under the under the criminal code of criminal procedure, it's more difficult to take a deposition, obviously. But I think you're right. I think you can. I mean, if you needed to preserve evidence mm-hmm. for some reason, right. or or like if in this, if there was some extenuating circumstance, like it's a kid, I don't want to call my teenage kid right. to mm-hmm. testify in the case where somebody's trying to put me in jail. You know, and you might do better with a deposition. Uh, now, I know two current Tarrant County courts that will not allow that. The child is going to take the stand, regardless of age. Mm. So. Yeah, that was my policy. Is if you called a child, I just did the common law predicate. I, yeah. You know, if the child was Knows under age the seven, they were presumed uh, incompetent. Yeah. If they were seven to fourteen, I had a hearing on their competence. Yeah, and, whether they know right uh, from wrong right. and that type yeah. of thing. That's a very funny story on that. But. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to share? <laughs> they had a, a story I read in the Bar Journal years and years ago by. Uh, judge Buckmeyer, may he rest in peace, was talking about a judge questioning a child witness as to her competence. And he said, he asked her several questions and he said, uh, do you know how important it is to tell the truth? She said, yes. <clears throat> and he said, do you know what will happen if you tell a lie? And she said, you will go to hell. <laughs> and the judge said, is that all? And the child said, isn't that enough? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So we got about a minute left. What are some practical tips, Judge, that you would give to litigants, um, particularly respondents, for avoiding jail time? I don't really, I I mean, these cases are so fact-driven. when it's a it's a non-payment of child support, first thing I would say is try to try to avoid a trial, get all the money you can together, and and try to make peace with the with the petitioner beforehand. At least have something to offer. Uh, if it's a, a possession and access case, uh, just do the best you can. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Hope for the best. Yeah. But. What about you, Jerry? Do you have any tips for trying a contempt case or defending a contempt case? Well, one thing the judge pointed out earlier in an earlier session is the idea that if you've identified some error in what the petitioner has done, mm-hmm. just sit on it. Yeah. Yeah. Just sit so on it. So that was an interesting judgment. question. I actually had that written down for us to talk about. So from an ethical standpoint, do you think that it's ethical for a respondent's attorney to sit on error? You know, to to wait until the first witness is called to say, "Hey, there's a defect in the pleading." I do think it's eth- in fact, I think it's, it's it's it required because you have a duty to your client of zealous representation, and uh, and I think that if you identify an error that is an acquittal type error, get out of jail free card. Exactly. Yeah. Then you must. You can't bring it up. Like if you bring it up and let the other side correct it, yeah. that that is unethical. Right. I believe that's correct. Right. Okay. There's no requirement for special exceptions in right in criminal work. It's just not. Right. I think, and I think that's important because I think the standard is probably well. I know it is different in like a normal divorce case. If you're going to complain about a pleading in a normal divorce case, the the complaining party has an affirmative duty to file special exceptions and get a hearing and have it heard. 
But in a contempt case, it's the opposite. It's more crim. It's in, it's like criminal law. You actually have an affirmative duty not to bring it up right. until you're in trial when double jeopardy attaches. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps us up for this session. Uh, we are going to move on to drafting contempt orders after the hearing. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Keep in mind that this is a webinar that's aimed at attorneys. This is for continuing legal education. If you're out there watching this, this webinar and you're not an attorney, we welcome you to watch it. But remember that we are not giving you any specific legal advice. We cannot comment on any specific case or situation without knowing all the facts. So if you need legal advice, this webinar is not a substitute for legal advice. Please, please seek the advice of a lawyer as to your specific situation and get specific advice to that because if you rely on just what we're talking about here we're being general we're talking about general legal pr principles that may not actually apply to your situation this is for continuing legal education only and we cannot create an attorney-client relationship just through the video camera okay thanks <laughs> you to put that at the beginning or the end put it at the end of the introduction okay so like between yeah between the intro yeah. and part one? Yeah. You got it.